0: Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise, and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. For decades, Russia's last Tsar, Nicholas II, who was murdered by the Bolsheviks in 1918, was deemed an enemy of the people. But in 2000, he and his family were sainted by the Russian Orthodox Church. Today, we talk to Dr. Matthew Dal Santo about the changing attitudes in Russia since the collapse of communism and the rehabilitation of the Romanovs. Matthew is a writer, historian, and foreign affairs commentator with a special interest in Russian history and culture. He studied history and European languages at the University of Sydney and has a PhD in ecclesiastical history from Cambridge. His forthcoming book, The Romanovs and the Redemption of Putin's Russia is to be published by Princeton University Press. So, welcome, Matthew. So, you've written a book about the changing attitudes to Tsar Nicholas II and the Romanovs. So, when did you first become interested in the subject?
1: I first became interested in this subject of their rehabilitation uh, fairly recently, 2014. But I've been interested in Russia and in particular late imperial Russia for much longer than that. I can remember, for example, reading a book. Edvard Radzinski uh, was one of the first to publish a book on the Romanovs when the Soviet Uh, when when the Soviet Union collapsed and the archives were first opened in the 1990s. And I can remember reading that on the beach, for example, when I was a 13-year-old, getting fascinated by this world that existed one minute and then came to an end spectacularly the next.
0: So how did you set about researching the book?
1: Well, that's a really good question. So it became a kind of a quest for me. After having seen this um, first icon in Moscow, I, uh, I wanted to know... How much popular support there was for this phenomenon, and you know what were some of the implications of this? You know, because if you if you turn a historical figure into a saint, a whole lot of things from the Russian point of view, well, certainly from the Orthodox point of view, become possible. A saint is obviously important, an important figure in in, in the Russian Church, but it's a it's a kind of figure that you commemorate with icons, but you also go on a pilgrimage to those places that have a close um, connection uh, with the saint. So what? Did that mean for the palaces? Had they become places of pilgrimage, for example? Um, did, people, did people attribute them, you know, look on them as holy places? So I went, decided that I'd go off, uh, take myself off across Russia and, and visit every part of the former Russian Empire, Russia, Russia, the Ukraine, Crimea, Belarus, that had a direct connection with the last imperial family, and visit those places where they had been. And look at what people were doing now with the places they'd lived or the places they'd holidayed or the places they were shot, the places they were buried. And uh, try, to take, try, try to take a measure of the distance between Russia 100 years ago, Russia 25 years ago at the end of communism and, and Russia today. And while I was there, you know, just walk up to people and ask them, you know, what they thought.
0: So is it the rehabilitation of the whole Romanov family?
1: It's certainly the rehabilitation of, of the last ruling Romanovs. In Russian, you say Romanov. So if, if anybody's listening who, who knows the correct pronunciation, yes, I know the correct pronunciation <laughs> too, but it's much easier in English to say Romanov. So certainly the last ruling Romanovs. Uh, it, it, the rehabilitation is, is of Nicholas, um, the last Tsar, uh, and, and, and um, Alexandra, the last empress, but also significantly too, um, the second last ruling uh, Romanov, Alexandra. Alexander III, who typically um, in both Western English language um, historiography, but also in Soviet era, historiography was, was cast as, you know, an even greater tyrant than um, Nicholas II. And there's a very concerted effort to rehabilitate his image. Too. He's not a saint, but he's nonetheless presented as, as a great national ruler.
0: So when did it begin, and how did it begin?
1: This this this, the rehabilitation. this rehabilitation. It began almost as soon. If you think about it, it began almost as soon as as the family were murdered. Um, it began outside of Russia almost as soon as the family were murdered. You have in the big Russian emigration, in the big, the big centres of the Russian emigration in Paris, for example, and in Berlin, and then later on the east coast of the United States, you have people who were once close to the court or whose parents were once close to the court starting to write very kind of laudatory things about um, these people and, and the terrible things that had happened to them. This culminates outside of Russia in 1980, I think it's 1980 or 1981, when the Russian church, Russian Orthodox church outside of Russia, declares them saints, um, the Russian Orthodox Church in Russia at that time is an organisation that um, is largely beholden to the Soviet authorities for the right to continue to operate. So it obviously doesn't take that step, and this becomes something that separates these two branches of you know, the Russian church for um, the next uh, two decades. But finally, when once communism has collapsed um, in, the, in Russia and, and the Soviet Union has collapsed, um, the space emerges for um, the reconciliation um, of these two churches is in a sense the kind of together they work out a new narrative of Russian history. Um, And so uh, within Russia, Nicholas Alexander and their children are canonised as saints in the year 2000, so fairly recently.
0: So where does the Kremlin fit into all this then?
1: Um, That's a good question and one that I think um, I'm still puzzling over. I say that because there's, there's, there's a tendency in the West to imagine that Everything that happens in Russia, every time somebody crosses the road, every time somebody turns the television on, they're doing it somehow at the Kremlin's command. Um, And it would be easy to imagine this as a purely top-down phenomenon, that somebody, Vladimir Putin, has decided that these people have to be rehabilitated, um, uh, you know, on the double, everybody falls into line and um, starts singing their praises. I actually don't think it's that kind of phenomenon. First of all, because Russia isn't a country like that. There's a lot more room for people to um, form their own opinions, to express their own opinions, um, and you know, to, to pursue their own cultural politics in Russia than I think uh, we really realise. Um, also because um, I, I've seen with my own eyes the kind of popular support that this, um, uh, you know, this cult of the Romanovs as saints has. You know, people go on pilgrimages to uh, their palaces or to the place in particular where they were shot and buried in their thousands. They, they, they walk through the night you know, for six hours in the rain from the place where they were shot to the place where they were buried out of, you know, a sense of great personal devotion um, to these people and their memories. And we're not talking about rich people either. Very often this is, um, you know, the, 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 really the sort of the lowest um, or the lower end of Russian society, and people are doing this with very limited means, presumably because it means something to them. So where does the Kremlin sit? On uh, Initially I think it was purely an observer of a... Um, phenomenon that was taking place as these two parts of the Russian church, um, and the Russian church is by no means a marginal institution in Russia, it's a really important thing, the country's leading um, cultural institution now that you know, the, the Communist Party um, and uh, its dogmas have been um, discredited. It was part of the dance of these two parts of the Russian church to find um, you know, and as I said, a new narrative of Russian history together, and find a way of of reconciling their differences. And at that stage, the Kremlin was an observer. But I think um, I think the Kremlin has always been um, uh, a generally supportive observer. But what the Kremlin hasn't wanted to do is estrange that fairly large proportion of Russian society. that's actually still. Quite fond of the old Soviet times, and uh, remembers Lenin as somebody who did do a lot of good for ordinary people, and that the Tsars did have too much money and didn't do the you know the right thing with it. Um, so the Kremlin has always had to play a kind of a balancing act. That they the Kremlin today is a fairly conservative body, and they and the conservative ideals of you know an Orthodox monarchy in a sense. Um, kind of find a natural appeal there, but on the other hand, the Kremlin knows that um, Russian society itself remains quietly divided between those who um, would have preferred there never to have been a revolution and there still to be a Russian czar on the throne, and those who are quite glad that there was one and, and, and look back with fondness on the Soviet on Soviet times, and, and those people who are who would actually kind of like to believe in both things at once.
0: Okay, so. You had in one of your papers that you wrote that in 2016, John Kerry met Putin. Yes. And he met him near a statue of Alexander II. That's right. That's
1: right.
0: So, I mean, Putin was endorsing that in a way.
1: Yes. So what... um Putin is very definitely endorsing that so what Putin very definitely endorses is the continuity of the of the modern Russian state with all previous historical embodiments of the Russian state that, that there is one continuous Russian historical tradition that begins in Kiev in the year 980 and it goes all the way up today um, to, to to Russia today without there being any break for any revolution um, so all of these all of these great rulers of the Russian past have to be integrated into the national narrative. And so you see, as a result, therefore, the restoration of a lot of things that would be familiar to people from, you know, 100 years ago before the revolution. The restoration, for example, of the double-headed eagle as the country's national symbol. The restoration of some of the guards... Uh, uniforms from the old imperial regiments. They've been re, um, reintroduced as the uniforms of the, of the new um, uh, post-Soviet Russian army. And, uh, yeah, and and—and and with that, the restoration of a lot of monuments that were torn down between 1918 and uh, 1991. Uh, so monuments to former Tsars have, have gone back up. Um, and, and that's one of them, um, That's even, even inside the Kremlin. So
0: what about Stalin? Because his reputation is being rehabilitated at the same time. That yeah. seems so contradictory, yeah.
1: doesn't it? Well, it's contradictory. Yeah, I mean, it's contradictory, um, but it's also, I think, part of the same general phenomenon. And, and that is that, you know, this is the, the current generation is is the sec- the first or the second generation now. It's more than 25 years since the um, collapse of communism, where people have been more or less free to make up their own minds um, about history, uh, where people have, where the archives have genuinely been open and where people have been unhindered apart from you know, their own language um, abilities to go and read what's written about the history in, in, uh, in other countries. With Stalin, what's interesting is that the Romanovs were um, dismissed as tyrants, but, but also to a large extent Stalin was. Uh, once Khrushchev um, came to power and there was a process of de-Stalinization, it became very, very difficult in the Soviet Union to talk positively about Stalin and one way of interpreting the rehabilitation of Stalin, so to speak, now in Russia is not something that's been actually directed by the Kremlin, but it's what happens when the Kremlin stops people saying what they would otherwise um, have thought, and certainly for people whose um, own family history is bound up with the Red Army, you know, and, and in a country like Russia there's a lot of them, people whose own family histories um, are bound up with victory over Nazi Germany, Stalin is uh, a figure that you know that if, to a large extent they've wanted to talk about for a long time and haven't been able to. Also, I think in the context of Russia today, where you have the return, you know a very, very un, unequal society where there are some very, very rich people at the top. um and um although yes, life has generally improved for most people um, materially, there you know life is still pretty tough in the bottom at the bottom of Russian society, and there are millions of people who live that way. And one thing that Praising Stalin allows you to do is say, look, here's a, here's a ruler who got really ruthless with the people at the top of society. And uh, this kind of popular praise for Stalin is actually, I think, also one way of giving expression to a dissatisfaction with the current oligarchy and some of the inequalities in, in Russian society.
0: So there are museums now, is that right? Or exhibitions about Stalin?
1: Well, this is what you read. And, and um, you know, I've read the articles in the New York Times and in the Independent and Newsweek and all the other places that talk about this astonishing phenomenon, um, museums, monuments. What has always struck me is that when I go to Russia, I struggle to find these things, um, certainly in the middle of Moscow you cannot find a statue to stalin that hasn't been damaged the only statue to stalin in the center of moscow is one that's had its nose knocked off and is in is in a park where they've put all the old statues that nobody wanted anymore by contrast when you go looking for this rehabilitation of the romanov stuff you find it in the center of moscow and what uh, what has struck me i suppose in in western coverage of um you know sort of russia's coming to grips with its past is that you know, Western journalists tend to comment on what they know. You know, they, they, they see one or two things going on with Stalin and then they, you know, because it's what they know, that's what they, that's what they write about. But by and large, Western journalists aren't trained, for example, to identify an icon of the Romanovs if they go into a Russian church. And that, in, that entire phenomenon, as, as a result, passes them by. And so there's a lack of balance, a lack of a sense of proportion, I think, when it comes to the Stalin phenomenon.
0: Do you think it's conceivable that the monarchy might be reinstated?
1: I've certainly heard people. I've had some success in in um, making contacts with people who um, have been close to the heart of um, not necessarily power in Russia, but close to the heart of of the people who are thinking about how power should be presented, and who have been brought into the kremlin in order to try to help the kremlin work out a new ideology for russia and at one point in time about 4 years ago uh, that ideology was conservatism and as part of that those people told me or had, had that they had themselves you know heard uh, uh, Putin say that he was in favour of a restoration of the monarchy as a way of drawing a line under the Russian Revolution to, to do what Franco did in Spain, you know, when he restored the monarchy after, um, what was it, 50 years, I think, in Spain. say that the Russian Revolution is over, we've turned that page, the continuities of Russian history are to be restored and we'll do that by restoring the institution whose collapse, you know, um, sent um, all of society into... Um, into a breakdown in 1917. And so for the sake of um, all of the conservative values that naturally attach themselves to a hereditary monarchy with um, with a relationship to an established church, yes, I think that there was some thought given to the possibilities of, of, of actually restoring the monarchy.
0: Would it need to be a Romanov? I mean, there's... Well, Nicholas and his sons and daughters died, obviously. Mm. So then there's fierce fighting, apparently, among who the heir might then That's be. That's right,
1: and there is. Yes, so one of the obstacles to any restoration is the fact that there are so many claimants and that the, what remains of the royal house are divided among themselves as to who the legitimate claimant is. To some extent, the Russian Orthodox Church has helped... The Kremlin here, the Patriarch of Moscow, um, without any question, the second most influential man in terms of, oh, culture attitudes, I suppose, uh, among, um, the broad mass of Russian people. He endorsed a particular claimant as heir, in his words, not to the Russian throne, but to Russian history, which is as close to the throne, I think, as you can get. That claimant, in fact, is a woman, Grand Duchess, um, Maria Vladimirovna. She has been sort of, I t- tapped on the shoulder by the church as, as the leading Um, representative of the former dynasty. What you'll also hear, however, is quite a number of people who would like some sort of monarchy restored. You'll hear them say, well, you know, it doesn't have to be a Romanov. And, in fact, the Romanovs only got there because uh, the people elected them to the throne. It was a Zemsky Sabor, which is the Russian term for an assembly of the land. It was an assembly of the land that elected the first Romanov Tsar in um, 1613. We, the Russian people, can do it again. I think that idea holds a certain amount of traction for a lot of people. I think, on the other hand, though, you shouldn't underestimate the extent to which Russia already has, as are. And what, in a sense, this phenomenon allows the current political arrangement to do is to operate in a space that's where the country formally is on paper, you know, a, a presidential republic, but where it um, recreates the atmosphere of of something much closer to, you know, the traditional Russian Orthodox um, monarchy.
0: And yet one wonders if that's going to change, you know, with the prime minister and the government resigning and Putin's probably not going to stay president past twenty twenty
1: four no no and and how, how quite to interpret those recent changes i 'm um, still trying to figure out um, i think that I think though that um, what we can be certain of uh, are a few things and they are that putin uh, believes that he's put Russia back on the right track. There's no question that the country is is economically um, much more pro- prosperous than it was at the end of Yeltsin's period, um, at the end of the 1990s, and that he's overseen a, a dramatic improvement in, in the quality of life of you know, most people, but that he also feels as though, and it's probably even more important to him in a sense, that he's, he's restored the country's morale. He's restored a sense of patriotism, but restored to the country a sense of itself, partly by endorsing this phenomenon that we've talked about about this, this rehabilitation of the wholeness of Russian history and the retrieval of, of a certain um, a conservative orthodox culture that has been intimately bound up with um, Russianness ness um, for centuries and of restoring that to a a prominent place in Russian society. So whatever these changes, whatever his purpose was in instituting these changes, it was certainly not to undo any of that. So I think the best way to look at those changes is is, is by... The starting point is to say, well, Putin clearly means by this to ensure that his legacy is guaranteed, that that the person who comes after him isn't able to unwind uh, his achievements so far and isn't able either to... um, throw Russia back into a kind of cultural revolution where this conservative heritage is denied and isn't, on the other hand, able to... Um, you know, his other big thing is Russian foreign policy. Russia is, again, an independent, sovereign state, you know, a great power. This is how Russians look at uh, themselves, a great power. whose um, interests have to be taken into account. Um, and he won't want any successor uh, of his to be in a position of kind of surrendering any of that um, to the West.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Joe Litson. Thank you for your company.